it's Ruth Lanius from Western University in Canada, and you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network Podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssen's tech whiz, neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman, and author of Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Seaburn Fisher. Our goal is to provide information, promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Ruth Lanius, or Ruth. She's the professor of psychiatry at the University of Western Ontario. She currently holds the Harris Woodman Chair in Mind-Body Medicine at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at the University of Western Ontario. But before we get to Ruth, we got to pay the bills, guys. Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Mary, how you doing out there? Sorry we're sending you all this international business, but you asked for it. Hey, three things our listeners and viewers can do to help spread the word of neurofeedback. Number one, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you like the video, which you will, please hit the like and click the bell so it lets people know when new podcasts come out. Those two little actions will take three people from watching us to 3,000 and spread the word of neurofeedback. Number two, please give us a review on whatever platform you listen to and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. You know what? Jay will even accept four and a half stars. Number th- number three, if you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. There are different levels in which you can support, whether you're a mom or dad or a clinician. There's even an option where you can have your own Q&A with Jay Gunkelman. This supports help us improve the quality of the content. Let's have some fun. Seaburn, you are very passionate about bringing Ruth on the show. How do you know Ruth? I met Ruth uh, in 2008 uh, when uh, Bessel hosted the first uh, training at the trauma center on neurofeedback. Um, I think, and Ruth can correct this, but I think she had heard um, Bessel speak about neurofeedback and it was instantaneously clear to her that this is how the brain worked was in this electrical domain. Um, so she came down from Canada to join us in the training. And there were, you know, as there are in those hands-on training, there were a couple of little miracles along the way of people changing on one guy who could never be social and wanted to go out for dinner and enjoyed being out for dinner. And uh, I don't know, Ruth may have had her own experience with training that day. Um, uh, the, over that three or four days, but um, that's how we met. And I think that at this point in time, and probably for quite a time going forward, Ruth qualifies as the leading researcher in trauma and neurofeedback, one of the leading researchers in the world on the effects of trauma, period, and particularly in the, uh, the category or the dilemma of dissociation. Uh, and we have great fun together in uh, just in hacking around, but also in in talking about how this works to uh, have descended or been 
been brought into a trauma field and how you get out of it and have a very um, enjoyable, deep intellectual and heart connection. So I'm so, I am passionate about her and having her here and I'm really glad to see you, Ruth. And that's the only time I've ever been able to introduce her. She's usually introducing me. So that's great. That's lovely. Yeah, you're, thank you for that kind introduction, Seaver. And it's such a pleasure to be here. And I so appreciate uh, really getting my first hands-on your feedback from you and really having learned so much from you and our ongoing conversation. So it's a true pleasure to be here. And I look forward to yet another conversation. Yes, me too. Now it's Mental Health Awareness Month, and again, you know, we mental uh, health should only be noticed uh, thirty days of the year. Uh, but what for the because moms and dads listen to this show, they're going to be exposed to this show. We have clinicians that are going to be exposed to this show all around the world. Ruth, what what is PTSD? That's a great question, Pete, and I think. Uh... PTSD is really a very complex set of symptoms. But I think at the core of post-traumatic stress is that traumatic memories are usually relived rather than recalled. I think that is really the essence of PTSD. So when people recall their trauma, they actually relive it and they feel like they're back at the scene of the trauma. You know, and this, of course... It has a dimensional sort of uh, presentation. Some people lose touch with the present altogether, but others still have some touch with the present. And when this happens, pe- people can have two different responses. They can either have too much emotion and too much arousal. And, you know, we often see this, and this is very easy, of course, to observe when somebody has too much emotion and too much arousal. But there's also the opposite pattern of presentation when somebody gets back into their trauma and lives it. And that's emotional detachment and their arousal doesn't increase significantly. So they're blunted. They're detached from their emotion. And often that's a survival strategy at the time of the trauma to actually get through it. And so I think it's really important to be aware of those differing presentations and also to be aware of that people cycle between those two presentations. So go from too much arousal, too much emotion, to too little emotion, and too little arousal. And I think the other key uh, factor about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder to be aware of is that we've moved beyond seeing post-traumatic stress just as a disorder of fear. You know, I think for many years, we were really focused on the fear and terror that people can experience as a result of trauma, but we've moved beyond that and we're very aware that anger, guilt, shame, you know, are absolutely critical to the experience of post-traumatic stress. And of course, especially shame also drives that sense of self after trauma often for individuals, I'm bad, I've done something horrible and I deserved it. Ruth, what is moral injury? Yeah, so moral injury is really related to feelings of guilt and shame. And I think we've heard a lot about it with respect to the pandemic, but also in, of course, we've, the first time it really came up was in relation to war. 
and military trauma. And moral injury really, uh, happens in result, you know, resulting from you know, your moral values or your moral belief, you know, you having to do something that really counteracts your moral values and moral beliefs. And often that's experienced in two ways. And, you know, people feel that they have this pit in their stomach or they feel like they're eaten up inside. For example, if a soldier had to kill a child that was shielding, you know, a soldier from the enemy, if they had to kill that child, you know, often, you know, they, they have terrible conflict with it. And, you know, that really, that feeling in their gut that they're being torn up inside. And uh, what we're showing now is that this also seems to be driving how we perceive ourselves. You know, this sense of self-network that's called the default mode network. So those visceral sensations are very tied to how we perceive and so. When we're feeling torn up inside about what we did, you know, these individuals are having tremendous guilt and shame and feel I'm bad, I'm a horrible person. And we also know that that's very much associated with suicidality. And I think that's why a lot of our soldiers end up committing suicide because they can't live with it. Now, in your practice, Ruth, in your career, it was, was it PTSD first, then neurofeedback? How did you become prominent? Because you, we also have some kids that are going to college, they're taking psychology and they're just getting exposed to neurofeedback. How did your journey get, uh, get you from undergrad to graduate school to, to neurofeedback? It's a great question, Pete. And it actually started in grade 12 when I won an award and uh, I received a book about the brain and I was absolutely fascinated by the brain and so when I enrolled in my undergraduate uh, program I actually took biopsychology because I was so fascinated by the brain which then took me to neuropathology which I soon realized that you know I didn't want to work with the dead I would work much rather with the living and I then switched to psychiatry and I became really fascinated by how resilient trauma survivors were, how they could heal, and how their brain, mind, and body could adapt to absolutely horrendous experience. And uh, because I also had a background in neuroscience, I really wanted to study that. And so one of my passions was really to start understanding what is happening in the brain in response to trauma. And of course, as we learned more and more, it quickly became apparent that the brain really had to adapt to deal with trauma. And so when I first heard about neurofeedback, I was actually reading about it almost at the same time as Bessel started talking about it. It just made intuitive sense to me that, you know, obviously the brain is firing differently in trauma, which, you know, was likely an adaptation to, you know, living with constant threat. And so how can we guide the brain directly into, you know, changing how it had adapted and neurofeedback just made intuitive sense because, you know, we're giving people feedback about their brain firing in real time. And so I thought, wow, you know, this makes sense. Yes, you, you singularly in the audience as I, well, maybe not singularly, but 
you know, it didn't make sense to everybody of your station. And it's of some, um, uh, it's of note that you got it so quickly and, and, uh, and have pursued it. So, Jay, I was wondering, do you see differences in these PTSD brains? And do you have anything to show us about that? Well, I just happen to have some. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let me do a quick screen share here and um, uh, take a peek at actual EEG, which is what I like to do. Um, this is an eyes clo- this is uh, uh, an eyes closed EEG full of alpha, and there's an excess of coherence in the alpha up front. You can see the alpha all lines up in phase. Uh, there's phase shift at the back of the head where there's some function, but the affective regulation and attentional regulation up front is just uh, uh, idled out. Now, uh, the, you can have this pattern with lots of uh, different presentations just with simple depression. Now, there's a, a eyes uh, a closed drowsiness that's occurring uh, back to a, a regular eyes closed with alpha. But uh, the transition to eyes open is a rather dramatic change. Uh, this is eyes open. Look at the back of the head. Uh, th- these are lambda waves. And lambda is not a, 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 a Greek term rhythm. It's an event, uh, a P100 wave of an event-related potential. Uh, and uh, what we basically see is uh, somebody who's got their amygdala charged up with emotion uh, fear, uh, anger, uh, but a, a primary emotion. You basically change the thalamic gating and the P100 wave arrives very large and early. And we can't tell when the person focused on something. All we can see is the lambda waves at the back of the head. And uh, they're, they're not present in, in eyes closed because they're a visual processing related rhythm. Well, uh, not a rhythm, an event. And uh, the, the EG here ends up having lots of them. Now, uh, the other item that's seen in this particular EEG is, is that the person ends up having derealization or uh, uh, dissociation. And uh, the, uh, these things are more subtle. Uh, they're not uh, gross observables like this. They're subtleties. On the screen at this moment, there's a slow rhythm that's seen at F7 and T7, the left frontotemporal area. And a cycle and a half didn't fit in a fifth of a second. So this is below the normal alpha rhythm frequency range. Uh, It's a localized uh, slow rhythmicity. And, you know, it's hard to describe to somebody who isn't really deep into waveforms that this looks like it's coming from the insula to me. Uh, But uh, let me do a little bit of bad art. Uh, uh, This wave and this wave that were in phase and and superimposed on each other have an inversion, a phase reversal to CZ. And when you have uh, the midline of the brain, the frontal lobe, the uh, temporal lobe, again, really really bad art here, but the, the insula is very deep in. And the pyramidal cells here would discharge orienting out. And you pick those up in phase at F7, T7, it's out of phase. The butt end of that dipole is picked up at CZ, out of phase. And 
you know, when I see the EEG, that's what I see. I'm, I'm looking at this going, damn, look at that insula. So, um, but it, I, I can't really uh, uh, describe this to people who can't see it. So there's visualizing uh, tools that we can use to s- do source analysis. And this is the source of that particular feature. It has the insula on the left side, which is uh, undoubtedly involved in the, the, def- the salience network is the anterior cingulate in both insula. And uh, the temporal lobe and uh, insula on the left side are uh, not functioning normally. Uh, the frequencies are off. And uh, what we basically see is people that have derealization, depersonalization uh, uh, with their PTSD end up having insular involvement in, in like this. Now, the anterior cingulate is obviously uh, uh, part of the salience network. And if this network isn't working right, things that are actually real and salient don't really quite seem right. They, they, they don't really have the normal salience of something that's real. This is a derealization, depersonalization uh, biomarker. Uh-huh. Uh, the, 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 the lambda waves at the back of the head tell us the person is visually hypervigilant and their amygdala is overcharged because uh, the, this rhythm or this finding is essentially not very common in adults. Uh, they're uh, very, very common on young kids looking around, uh, but in adults, it's not that common. And uh, in PTSD subjects, uh, visual hypervigilance is one of the classic biomarkers. Uh, we we uh, we see this as a, uh, a one of the easy to spot uh, signals that the person's uh, uh, got uh, hypervigilance, and that is is one of the things that's associated with uh, PTSD. Uh, anyway, that's uh, uh, I'll I'll uh, uh, jump off uh, at this point and stop the share. Um, but but that, that's the kind of stuff I do on a day to day basis. I look at wiggly lines and. Uh, try to interpret what they mean and uh, uh, it's kind of like a master mechanic listening to the hood of your car and telling you that you need a valve job you know the uh, the, they didn't have to go in there and tear it apart to find out what was wrong Uh, they could sense the vibration of it being wrong from the outside and the eg is kind of like that it's uh, uh, surface oscillations that reflect uh, deeper uh, structures and uh, if you if you've read too many of them like I have, you start to see things. And uh, if you're seeing things, you're either crazy or you might have seen something that's real. Um, I, I published about the uh, endophenotypes uh, that that are genetically linked to EG patterns in 2005, um, and that that was seeing patterns in the data, uh, which uh, could have been just you know idiocy. Uh, but you have to publish about it so people can test the, the the findings. And luckily, it's all turned out fairly well because it it was a retrospective observation of 500,000 or more EEGs, and uh, it could have just been, you know, a bad brain looking at wiggly lines and coming up with something that wasn't even meaningful. But uh, uh, luckily, the the genetically linked EEG patterns have been validated, and uh, the, the the biomarkers end up being quite uh, predictive and useful for for uh, predicting protocols and training approaches. Ruth has also found, as I recall, 
the left insula uh, showing up in uh, fMRI studies as well. And I'm wondering if you had come up with a, a similar conclusion, Ruth, about what what how this is contributing to the dilemma of PTSD. Absolutely, and thanks for that elegant description, Jay. And something interesting we've uh, found actually, and of course we think so much about the salience network as Jay talked about, because that really helps us guide to what is most important both inside but also in the environment and how do we have to respond behaviorally. And of course, when you have a lot of hypervigilance symptoms, everything is important, everything is salient, right? And you have real difficulties figuring out what's most salient and the opposite occurs when you're dissociated or detached, right? As Jay was showing us in this EEG, then things become less salient, right? And you just kind of shut down and detach from everything. And in our imaging work, we've actually shown totally opposite associations with insular activation. So the more hypervigilant you are, the more insular activation you have, as opposed to the more detached you are and the more dissociated you are, the less insular activation you have. The interesting thing about the insula is that it also has representations of the viscera. Exactly. The, uh, there, there used to be the old term abdominal epilepsy. Uh, and it's obviously not part of the international classification system, but it was very descriptive. If there was a discharge deep in the sylvian fissure influencing the posterior aspect of the insula, you would expect visceral smooth muscle contractions, not striate uh, 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 muscle that moves the skeleton, uh, but but actually visceral muscles that propel uh, uh, food through your uh, through your intestinal tract. So those are very painful and. Uh, and obviously, uh, severe abdominal pain uh, with a discharge in the temporal lobe of an epileptiform nature uh, tells you that that's a, 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 a discharge that's actually influencing the smooth musculature. Um, and we've, we've successfully worked with intractable epileptics that had uh, temporal lobe epilepsy uh, recommended for brain surgery uh, and they're medication-free, seizure-free. And without the uh, visceral uh, uh, pain uh, aura that predicted the more uh, ob- obvious uh, uh, convulsive seizures. But um, uh, uh, your, your description of people having uh, discomfort, uh, visceral discomfort uh, associated with PTSD, you know, we're, we're clicking. Uh, network links uh, together here that all make sense neurophysiologically uh, to to kind of understand the presentation. And with the uh, with the work on ACEs that's out there at this point, predicting downstream health consequence, and recent work showing that depression and anxiety uh, uh, earlier in life predict really negative health outcomes uh, later in life, um, we basically uh, see the need to intervene on PTSD and people that have had higher scores on ACEs in order to uh, help them neurophysiologically adapt uh, so that they don't have the pathology later in life. And there, there aren't that many ways to directly influence the brain. Uh, the neuromodulatory tr- direct treatments, TMS, 
TDCS, TACS, uh, stimulation technology, or neurofeedback. One thing about stimulation technology is they don't teach you anything. It's a treatment. Um, you don't walk away from the treatment with a new skill. Neurofeedback teaches you self-regulatory control and you walk away with a skill and you actually get better at it. The pre-post neurofeedback at outtake, people have a certain amount of improvement, but on six month and one year follow-up, they're even better. You know, I, I describe it kind of like riding a bicycle. You know, if, uh, you, you might've uh, been taught to ride a bicycle with your father holding on the seat. Um, well, from the point of time that he was, running along behind you. And when he let go, that's like the end of uh, therapy. Um, but, you know, I got a lot better later, uh, jumping curbs and uh, pulling wheelies and riding with no hands. Um, those things were learned after the therapy was done and, and uh, with experience. And it, with, a, with a skill that you've learned, you get better and better at it. And neurofeedback is like that. It, it it trains you how to operate the brain. You have a skill when you're done and you can get better and better at it if you use the skill. Uh, it, it, it's really fun to see uh, 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 focus on neurofeedback at a high level. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a tech uh, and uh, Ruth's MD, PhD, kind of the opposite polar ends of, of practice. Um, but we're, we're all looking at the same uh, positive outcomes. Um, I started in neurofeedback before the term existed, uh, essentially 50 years ago, uh, in 1972, uh, with my first lab at a state hospital. Um, uh, and it, it's been uh, really quite an interesting uh, uh, observation of a development of a field over the last 50 years, from Camille's work with Alpha and Sturman's work with SMR, uh, to the current work using infralow frequencies, uh, slow cortical potential training, um, the, 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 the uh, uh, higher level of assessment that's going into uh, people before the, the, the neurofeedback starts. I mean, the, the development of the field has been really quite uh, striking. Uh, when I started, there was no efficacy for anything being proven. Uh, and at this point, there's really solid evidence for uh, quite a few applications. Uh, PTSD has some evidence. It's not, uh, it's not totally uh, 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 full efficacy level quality but Jay, yet, but, Jay, uh, but it, it's getting there. But Jay, you fall into the same trap of the DSM. Like these are different, such discreetly different disorders. And the efficacy, if we have to pin our efficacy on training 157 disorders that don't exist, we're in trouble, right? So, so efficacy is efficacy in the brain. Arousal is arousal, lowering arousal, organizing the brain in fundamental ways to, as you've described, is the essential uh, uh, proof of the, of the pudding. Right. So, so it's very important that we don't, we, we both have to sort of do a nod to the DSM and back, I don't want to get back into that, that discussion because we both go into a rant, but <clears throat> we go into a mutual where we're together in this rant, but, uh, but it, it's easy to fall into it because it's as though we have to prove this point over and over again with dysregulation that's called a different name that's not very different in the brain. 
So, I mean, I'll have differences, but it's not, it's, fi- it's findable, right? One of the things that I wanted to ask you both is um, the findings are very striking there, uh, Jay, and for you too, Ruth, in the left insula. And I'm wondering what's going on in the right insula. And if you could describe, um, you know, the right and the left uh, in terms of both their, their unimpeded function and then their, uh, the problems that they have that, that people can have in trauma with those uh, uh, right and left insulas. You know, uh, um, the right insula has, has been identified in a specific kind of a task. Uh, the go, no go, stop task. If you've seen a signal that tells you you now have to actually hit the button and then you get a second signal telling you to stop, um, the right insula is the spot that ends up lighting up with that particular task. And um, the, the right frontal and insula work together in a gating function to, uh, to filter out uh, emotions from expression or impulses from uh, behavioral expression. So uh, the fact that it's involved in uh, the stop command and the ability of that area to end up gating expression uh, ends up uh, being an important uh, observation. Uh, When that side isn't working, if you have a 98 pound weakling at the gate, pretty much anything goes through. And at that point, if you've had very, very good parenting, you just look gregarious. But if you didn't, um, uh, that, that's explosive, impulsive, um, uh, destructive behavior. And uh, those areas have been identified uh, previously in individuals that have uh, death row uh, sentences for impulsive murder. Uh, so we've, we've got, I think, enough evidence that when things are really bad in that area, uh, behavior is really quite off as well. So, so it's a so the assumption that I would make from what you just said is that it is part of the inhibitory process for the amygdala or for the fear circuitry, the PAG uh, amygdala circuitry that Ruth is identifying. Assuming it's working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And really important in helping us predict what's going to happen, right? And I think in trauma, we've learned to predict that the worst will happen, right? And so in order to maximize survival, that inhibition, right, isn't always consistent with increasing our chances of survival. So if we're constantly predicting, oh my God, the worst will happen, then we have to respond accordingly, right? And which is often not to inhibit. And so I think we can get into a nasty vicious cycle that if we don't understand why it's happening, again, we can label people, right? As, you know, these are bad people, like the death row guys, right? These are bad people, bad behaviors, but if you understand it in context of why it's happening, it makes complete sense. You know, uh, both insula and the anterior cingulate end up being involved in specifically uh, salience. But uh, the anterior singlet is also seen in obsessive, compulsive, oppositional, defiant. Uh, that's locked on. When, when the singlet's working, it gives you cognitive and emotional flexibility. But when it's not working, it could be locked on, OCD, ODD, or you could be locked off. Lack of initiation, lack of motivation, procrastination, 
Um, uh, but it, it also ends up being a key piece in those that have suicidality. If your anterior cingulate is not working and you have the underlying compulsion just under the surface, you're still dangerous to yourself. If we fix the anterior cingulate so you're no longer um, suffering from the compulsion and, and the obsession uh, with the thought, um, at that point and only at that point do you end up not having uh, a residual risk factor that uh, no matter how well you think you may be, unless that area is actually fully mm -hmm. functional, you're still dangerous to yourself. It's amazing what we think we can address with psychotherapy when you talk about it like this, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's like there's an underlying brain dysfunction, really a well-documented uh, brain dysfunction between the two of you, and there are others too contributing to this literature. Uh, and it's hard to imagine that we can reach this through conversation. Even the most dedicated, you know, the most rhythmic conversation is going to be hard to establish, particularly in adults, this kind of brain function to, you know, for an hour a week or whatever we, whatever insurance provides. Great point there, Seaburn. Yes. Mom and dad, mom and dad's raising his hand, the neophyte yes. here. Yes. Adoption. Can I just run through this flow chart and we can address it or we can dismiss it. But in order to have adoption, people need to be able to pay for it. In order for them to pay for it, they need insurance to pay for it. In order for insurance to pay for it, you need government backed research or the government saying, okay, yes, this is a thumbs up in order for the government to get behind it. Uh, the constituents need to ask for it. In order for constituents to ask for it, there needs to be awareness of it. In order to have awareness, you need promotion, but you can't promote it if you have a degree. Ruth, you're in Canada and you have a different type of healthcare there. How does Canada deal with neurofeedback and paying for it all? Great question, Pete. And uh, yeah, in Canada, we have social medicine, right? So everybody has, uh, you know, the right to have medical care. And of course, neurofeedback still needs to be disseminated more. But uh, I think we have a huge step in this uh, recently, which is that Veterans Affairs now covers neurofeedback for our veterans. So we're very that. And... Uh, as a psychiatrist, I can provide uh, neurofeedback. I think it's uh, appropriate under psychiatric care. And I know also a number of hospital settings that are starting to implement uh, neurofeedback. Yeah. So certainly available as part of social medicine, as part of our veterans care. And I think, you know, the more evidence we show and the more people we train, I think that's also critical, really train those younger generations and help them see how that can really complement their psychotherapy, as Seaburn just talked about, right? That just talking is so limited, right? We need to think about other ways of really targeting the brain directly. And one very important way, of course, is neurofeedback. And I think another important uh, way are these sensory motor treatments that also affect the brain very directly 
through peripheral pathways and then, you know, it going into the brain or directly into the brain as well. But yeah, how can we really target the brain directly? And I think neurofeedback is an absolutely beautiful way of doing that. In the U.S., we don't have quite that uh, open uh, health system. Uh, We've got a health denial system, not a health care system, really. Um, But, you know, there's some places that have actually organized uh, uh, effectively within within our chaos of a system. Uh, I don't think of Texas as a progressive situation generally, but in Texas, the neurofeedback biofeedback group got political and they lobbied and there's a a law in texas that insurance companies can't deny coverage for neurofeedback for tbi now it was a very narrow uh effort uh, just for traumatic brain injury coverage but it was quite effective uh, uh in our uh, luddite system here uh i, I think we've got the ability to influence it kind of one little step at a time uh, is very difficult to uh, have a, a bottom-up influence on a top-down structure. And, uh, uh, but uh, again, there's some uh, smaller uh, instances where uh, uh, parent groups have actually, uh, and professional groups have actually organized to, uh, to pass uh, local uh, laws. There's a movement now, and it looks like it could pass in Rhode Island to uh, for vets in Rhode Island to get neurofeedback. It's really vets that, uh, you know, that that seem to be um, the population to be cared for and that are, you know, and so often the care is either traumatic brain injury or trauma, Um, psychological, moral injury all of these things that are very hard to reach, particularly with a predominantly male uh, population who, you know, doesn't want to do any kind of conventional, you know, typically not favoring psychotherapy or addressing their, even recognizing their problem. In fact, they they prefer not having the D, uh, PTS with Mm -hmm. no D is, you know, if, if you're being all you can be, you can't admit to having a d- disorder of some right, sort. But so you couldn't even have to. You could, uh, they could be right about that, yeah. right? That it is just shock. It, and yeah. it is, and it is in the brain as we are yeah. discussing. Actually, if you want to be all you can be, you need to learn how to control your, your brain and recover uh, from trauma that you're going to obviously be exposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the military sees that and there's, they've been doing some uh, pre-deployment uh, 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 training to see whether they can have an influence over post-deployment uh, uh, complaints and so forth. So, you know, the uh, one thing about the military is that they don't really publish their work um, in, a, in a way that's as productive as one might hope. Um, uh, yeah, but uh, uh, if they find a good efficacy, they'll institute it at least. Dr. Ruth, are they teaching neurofeedback at the college level in Canada more so than in the United States? Does anybody know? Not that I'm aware of, Pete. Okay. Because no. we have what? University of Texas at San Antonio. We, that, that's the only program in, in the United States, really, that's being recognized? Uh, Saybrook University is, is a, an accredited university, and they have an applied psychophysiology program. 
and a mind-body medicine uh, a, a program uh, with uh, uh, different uh, course tracks, uh, uh, some towards clinical, uh, you know, uh, uh, licensure and some more uh, uh, just a skill set that you learn mind-body medicine uh, without necessarily a specific licensure track. So, um, uh, and people with a license can end up adding on that skill set without having to go for another degree uh, uh, necessarily oriented towards a licensure because they already have it. Because a lot of lot, lot of uh, people are saying that you have to go to this, through psych get a bachelor's in psychology first, then a graduate degree level, and it seems to me if you can just learn to be a tech, I mean, in the U. No, no, Seaver. <laughs> I I, I always I always tell people don't do what I did. You know, right, right, uh, right. I, I, I urge people to actually get a good degree. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not just. I mean, Jay is an exceptional person, and he would have gotten here no matter what. But it, it but he's also not working with trauma firsthand, right? He's not have to open an office and work with somebody who's in tears and who is uh, in a situation of domestic abuse and working through all of the ramifications of being a trauma survivor. Yeah. You know, he's helping us by showing us what's going on in the brain and how to help the brain, but how to help the person is the degree, right? That's, yeah. and that's what is vital. Um, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't treat uh, trauma survivors, uh, particularly um, people with developmental trauma, early childhood abuse and neglect, and neglect is the bigger factor of the two, as awful as abuse is. Neglect opens the door for abuse, but the but neglect doesn't allow you any way to organize your brain. And the, um, that I wouldn't uh, treat anybody with that kind of history without psychotherapy. I think that's a fool. I think that's unethical. I think there ha you know, what we are, the, what Ruth has shown us is that the default mode network, which is the network that gives rise to a sense of self and other, is not available to people who have these histories, the severe histories, okay? What we are most likely doing with neurofeedback through quieting arousal is to allow the default mode network, the sense of self and other to come online. You can't do that in a closet, right? You can't do that leaving somebody in to train and then you know going out for lunch and coming back. You can't do it that way. You have to do it in deep relationship to another human being. And so it's never, this is, uh, neurofeedback is not a threat to this profession of psychotherapy at all. It is the deepest encounter with the, uh, with the nature of, of, of this human being and particularly this traumatized human being. And we can change those very patterns that Jay and Ruth are showing us um, uh, with uh, neurofeedback, but not with neurofeedback alone. Yeah, Sorry, Steve Burnett, that's what happens when you have an MBA asking the questions. What would you say, Dr. Ruth? I always say, oh, you know, you be a better psychotherapist when you do neurofeedback, because what I've noticed in working with people is that changes, of course, occur quicker. People become more aware of emotions they haven't been aware of for a long time. So that leads to an identity shift much quicker. And 
of course, we know that especially traumatized individuals, but also others are afraid of change, right? Even though what they're experiencing may be very painful, change is so frightening, right? We're human. And so any change is frightening. And so when we speed up these changes through neurofeedback sometimes, you know, we really have to help them to integrate those changes and really facilitate that new identity or that, you know, new sense of self and how to negotiate the world and your, both your inner world and your outer world with that shift in identity. When I look at the eyes closed EEG on somebody that has PTSD, the biomarker that stands out, not in the eyes open where lambda happens, but with the eyes closed, is the right temporoparietal junction. You can see the size of the alpha over here. Uh, it rivals the O1, in fact, it beats O1 even. Uh, uh, this is the location in the brain that uh, observes facial expressions and body language and the emotional tone of speech. So uh, uh, if this is essentially idled, it's like closing your eyes, making alpha at the back of the head. This is the emotional uh, area being insensitive. And if we train the person to control this and drop this down and gently activate this location, they basically open up their emotional eyes. You know, if you've got one of these, you know, if you're blind, you carry a red and white cane and you tap in front of yourself and people know you're blind. We, we don't hand out orange canes or pink canes or something for people that are affectively blind, but that, you know, this is functionally not somebody who's going to end up having a lot of good insight and things like that. Again, if we fix this, at that point, the therapist has uh, the rapid progression because this area now is working. But it also, you know, right now, not perceiving is, is a state that they're in. If you suddenly turn this on, what they start doing is misperceiving. They'll perceive, but they don't have any basis to understand what they're perceiving. So the therapist has a lot of grist for the therapeutic mill once you open up the perceptual eyes and, and, and perception happens. Very much like a cochlear implant uh, where they suddenly can hear. Everybody's happy that little Johnny can hear mom uh, say, I love you. And th that's great. But pretty quickly, little Johnny tries to turn the damn thing off because of all the noise. Well, it's not noise. It's the richness of the auditory environment. And you have to leave that implant on in order to learn what you're hearing. So very much the same way. As soon as you open up the emotional eyes, you, you end up having to learn what it is you're perceiving. Anyway, this biomarker is a major uh, feature. Uh, when you see this, you can predict that the individual has social perceptual problems. It could be PTSD, could be social anxiety, uh, could be reactive attachment disorder. Uh, you know, the, the DSM categorizations end up having the commonality of, I can't see affective stuff. And when that's there, the symptom that cuts across the DSM is present. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. What a heck of a show. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. It was a pleasure being part of it. Now, Ruth, what's the best way if somebody wants to learn more about you and the uh, university, what's the best way uh, they can find out more in info? Um, I have a Facebook page, I have a LinkedIn page, and also 
a, a webpage, ruth.lanius.com. Got it. We'll have everything in the uh, podcast notes. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters and our show sponsor. How you doing, Mary? Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education The EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA, QEG certified didactic courses. Register now at eegstrategies.com slash course hyphen neuro. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That little like and click to subscribe is the difference between three people and 3,000 people learning about neurofeedback. If you have an idea for a topic or guest, please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with a link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And hey, if you really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash Neuronoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. Where do they get this kind of coverage? And they can get coverage with DJ Gunkelman for one hour. Check it out. Cue the music. (laughs) 